Welcome to Givers, Doers, and Thinkers. I am your host, Jeremy Beer, and today we are talking to Alicia Manning about what private foundations need to do and need not to do if they really want to help civil society flourish. Let's go. Givers, Doers, and Thinkers introduces listeners to the fascinating people and important ideas at the heart of American civil society. We speak with philanthropists, nonprofit leaders, social entrepreneurs, historians, journalists, and anyone else who will help us understand contemporary civil society's achievements and failures. We also sprinkle in practical advice for nonprofit leaders and fundraisers. My name is Jeremy Beer, and thanks for joining us. All right, thanks for being with us. Coming to you once again from downtown Phoenix, Arizona, where a few drops of something like water seemed to be falling from the sky earlier this morning. Haven't seen that in a few months here, so that was cool. Our guest, Alicia Manning, is not in Phoenix, but I presume in Milwaukee. Is that right, Alicia? That's right. Well, let me properly introduce you. Uh, Alicia is the Senior Program Director at the Lines and Harry Bradley Foundation in Milwaukee, and let's just stop right there. Did I say it right? Is it Lined and Harry Bradley? Foundation? That's correct. Good job. So that's the first thing we need to get straight. Uh, now you're the senior program director, which for those who are not familiar with how um, foundation titles work, I mean, that means you are someone at the foundation who really does stuff. You work on the ground um, with nonprofit organizations, uh, particularly faith-based and private voluntary efforts aimed at solving uh, society's uh, problems. Um, You uh, are on the selection committee for the Manhattan Institute's Civil Society Award, which is cool. I'd like to know more about that. And you have served on a uh, gubernatorial commission, I assume in Wisconsin, on the family. I'd love to hear more about that as well. I'm happy to talk with my friend Alicia here today. So how are you doing, Alicia? I'm doing very well, Jeremy. Thanks. Alicia, where are you from from? Like, where did you grow up? So I grew up in uh, the next county over in Waukesha County um, in a what was then a rural town called Pewaukee. It's now uh, a suburb of, of Milwaukee. Um, but I was born in Southern California, and that's where my entire extended family um, it, it, it remains. Um, and I, I therefore have sort of grown up feeling like a little bit of a of a uh, nomad that didn't really belong anywhere, but oh wow! My, you're a Wisconsin woman, it sounds like. I mean, yeah, you, uh, my, my they say that I'm more of a Midwestern girl than not. So, yeah, that that seems right to me. Well, um, okay, we're going to talk about a lot. I'm going to get into your work with the Bradley Foundation. Uh, what, what I want to start with what the foundation does, uh, kind of broad, big picture, and then um, we'll drill down to what you do and what you see on the ground and. And all sorts of things about uh, how you all are trying to help um, prop up uh, and strengthen civil society. But, but first, elaborate for us on the Bradley Foundation's mission, uh, and, and then especially its local work there in Milwaukee. Uh, what does the foundation do, and 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 why does it do it? Sure, um, we are a private foundation um, whose giving is guided by four core principles, actually, um, to protect constitutional order to strengthen the free market system, uh, to inform and educate citizens, and cultivate a strong civil society. And it's that last principle, uh, civil society, that really animates our local work. Um, So our support of arts and cultural institutions, which is significant, uh, resides in that area. But um, I think you're really referring to our support of grassroots and faith-based groups that do life-transforming work. Um, Our objective there is to... um, identify organizations that are really animated by leaders who are capable of uh, cultivating individuals capable of self-governance. We're looking for leaders who are really driven to solve problems in the community because they can't not do it. They just can't do anything else with their lives. Um, they, they, They understand the problems and the solutions intimately um, because they have um, either experienced them or, or lived among them. And I would say the, the sort of central criterion, the, the driving principle in, in all of the groups that we support is that their work is transformative. Um, it focuses on personal relationships. 
uh, and uh, efforts to sort of model what it means to conduct a, a well-lived life, um, often in the context of faith, rather than um, transactional, in which uh, organizations are really focused on service delivery um, to passive recipients of those services who are sometimes characterized as victims um, and sort of trying to perfect that way of, of addressing problems. Okay, so this is really good. We need to, we need to kind of slow down here because you and I talk about this sort of distinction <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's obviously fundamental to what you do, but I want to kind of slow down and make sure we explain it. Um, it's really, I mean, it's really fundamental. The, this distinction, as you just put it, between uh, a transfer, an organization that aims at transformation uh, and one that aims at uh, is, is transactional. So can you um, unpack, uh, unpack that? Like, what are the differences between those two kinds of organizations? Sure. Um, it's really interesting because I have found that um, the fact of being a nonprofit grant-seeking organization causes people to sort of come up with their mission and vision statements as they should and define um, what they do fairly narrowly. But it's been my experience that all of the organizations that inhabit the embody those characteristics that, that we're talking about if essentially do the same thing. And, and when you boil it down, they, they have the same characteristics and they're really doing the same thing, possibly with slightly different populations. So it's, it's, it's an, it's a view of the community and its organizations that relies on leaders, um, not organizations. Okay. Um, Organizations are are legal containers. They're they're non they're um, you know tax designations. Nonprofits are tax des- designations. But um, what's happening? Who's running that organization? Um, uh, their sort of their characteristics, um, their commitment. That's what we're looking for. Um, Can you give an example? So give me uh, you know just one or two organiz- or leaders <laughs> maybe. Uh, you can use names if you want. Who embody the sorts of characteristics or the, that you're talking about? Sure. Um, so in Milwaukee here, there's an organization called the Running Rebels Community Organization. The foundation's been supporting it for um, more than two decades. And when we first encountered this organization, um, it was one man, Victor Barnett, um, who had developed a basketball program that he had been running informally for at least a decade. Uh, and um, he needed to raise money for the first time uh, because he had a, a team of kids that he was mentoring that did so well in the playoffs that they were to travel to a national um, you know, championship tournament and they didn't have any travel money. Um, so we made an investment uh, alongside another uh, another foundation in getting those kids to the tournament. Was it important that they have uniforms and, and get to a basketball tournament? No, but it was important that Victor Barnett's initiative to sacrificially dedicate his life to solving problems um, wasn't stopped because he hit um, sort of the limits of his capacity at that moment. Uh, it was encouraging to him and it was sustaining um, and prevented him from perhaps having to uh, quit and get another job. Um, and he's since grown that organization into um, a, a really complex sort of interdisciplinary organization serving thousands of kids, um, interacting with the court system because they demonstrated a better way to work with adjudicated youth um, uh, and so forth. And all of that sort of organic growth happened because a couple of people made early small investments because they saw that Victor, beyond um, beyond any business plan, was dedicated to saving the lives of those yeah, you were interested in in supporting the service of basketball coaching, uh, and I'm from Indiana, so I, I obviously I do think that's a very important service. By the way, <laughs> uh, to be clear, but um, but it was the the um, relationship uh, and the, the there's a whole theory of civil society lurking behind what you do. It seems to me, yeah, which it seems to me that it's um, yeah personal relationships uh, of. Um, care and, and commitment and love that strengthen our communities, not just getting the sort of the service mix right. Is that, is that fair to say? That's right. And I think um, it's important to not to focus on the sort of sentimentality 
of that love and care. Yeah. And those are sort of words that um, people throw yeah, around. Now, I don't mean them in a sentimental way, but yeah, no, no, I know exactly what you mean. Um, I, but I think to, we, to really, yes, those are, that's all true that there's, there's personal dedication and um, commitment and devotion um, that's driven by love and caring. Um, but that there's also tough love and um, uh, other things that happen in the context of a healthy relationship um, mm-hmm. and that these uh, organizations and I guess really small communities um, that um, such leaders uh, grow are places where values are sort of transmitted from one generation to the next generation and where that kind of transformation takes place in an environment where there are expectations um, too. So it's not this sort of selfless one-way love. It's it's loving people until you can teach them how to love you back and expecting that they will. That's very good. I like that. So um, what's an example then of what what's a transactional organizational model look like? Like what, what do you encounter sometimes? Maybe somebody applies for funding from the Bradley Foundation. What do you see when you say, ah, nope, not, not for us? Sure. Um, I, I think there's... Um, or, there are organizations that are too beholden to models, uh, to sort of um, programs that have been developed and that uh, that they stick with uh, as a way of sort of um, creating a framework for measurement mm-hmm. instead of being flexible enough to respond to needs that change uh, all the time. So um, if, if you have a, a sort of an organization that's delivering services, um, they're sort of also sort of creating a timeline on which they expect to people to um, uh, you know be finished to, to begin and to be finished with their services and then um, they're done they're out the door and we move along to the next group um, that's sometimes not enough time to even plant seeds um, uh, that will germinate someday let alone to solve people's complex issues to address the issues that are, that are complex. So I think that's, that's one, that sort of framework that um, is inflexible. I think there's also a tendency to um, put a high uh, priority on scalability and replicability. Um, And uh, communities like the ones that I'm describing that we're looking for are, individual, um, and they're grounded in the particular. And they're sort of intrinsically small is what you're saying. That's right. Well, they, they sometimes can become big, um, but bigness is not the, the, the sort of criterion or the big, it's not the indicator of effectiveness. I don't, isn't, okay. But so people are coming to you with idea, uh, programs that they can measure, but therefore maybe aren't as flexible uh, ideas about scalability and replicability, um, aren't they, um, isn't that what funders want to hear? I mean, are, are they, um, do they really believe in all that stuff? I guess I'm asking, uh, or are they, are they saying what they think, what they've been told is necessary to make it in the, in the philanthropic marketplace? Are the grant seekers saying what they've been told? Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there's some, some wisdom in that question. Um, I mean, you guys, I, I, you, maybe you don't want to say this, but you are unusual, right? In not um, uh, emphasizing measurability, scalability, replicability uh, in, in the sorts of things you fund. I think or, that's or, right. Uh, yeah. I think, I think that's true. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, mean, I think there is a, a sort of um, a level of comfort that people have. Um, when they're when their donors either giving away their own money or professionally, you know, involved in professional philanthropy, that um, there, there's a sense that accountability is important, and there's a, a comfort in uh, in quantifiability. Um, I think the the problem lies in the fact that because of just what what you just said, um, because people understand that 
demonstrating measurability or quantifiability is an important thing to do in philanthropy, that the um, that it ends up driving people to do things that are measurable, and those things might not be the most important things to do, if that yeah, makes the tail, sense. The tail ends up wagging the dog. I think that's right, uh, and I think it's it, it gets it becomes reductive. And, and we can we can talk about all kinds of examples, and I don't want to get bogged down in that. But uh, no, I want those examples. Give give me if you have one coming to mind. Give me the example. Sure. Um, so here's an example in education reform for a period for a long period of time. Um, there were people talking about the number of students um, that graduated and, and were accepted into college. There's sort of this college acceptance number. And um, in Milwaukee, for example, we have a robust parental choice program and uh, a really robust community of um, charter schools that heroically invest a, a lot of um, effort into uh, g- getting children who might not otherwise have access to a high quality education sort of across that finish line. And they sometimes boast about um, 100% college acceptance rate. It sounds impressive, particularly to donors. Um, right. But the real, the real story about what happens to those students when they go to college is pretty mixed. Um, mm. And many of them, for non-financial reasons, have trouble succeeding in that environment because they don't have enough support. Um, but that doesn't stop you know, folks from using that as a talking point. And I want to be gentle. I mean, these are, these are organizations that are, that are doing terrific things, but right. I, I think it's really the philanthropic environment that drives that priority. Yeah, exactly. It's a really good example of how you, we can distort people's goals um, and ends by uh, producing incentives that maybe aren't really aligned with the best interests of those who are, who are seeking to help, at least purportedly. Right. And the people who run those schools know this. Yeah, I, I'm sure they do. I mean, I, I hear this sort of thing. Like, you know, we have to say this because it's what our funders want to hear. How, how do you get uh, – so, Alicia, so, you you know, you work in this world. Uh, you are a foundation representative. Um, uh, how, how do people get funders to um, to listen, I guess, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and, uh, and to – have, how, how do you have a come to Jesus moment with a funder and say, hey, I know you're trying, you've said you want to accomplish X, I'm telling you, and therefore you're measuring Y or whatever it might be. Why isn't what you need to be interested in if you're really concerned about X? Sure. Um, I guess it's a matter of exposing as many funders as possible to another way of thinking about this work and sort of separating um what it is that what what's what's actually happening from sort of the appearance of what's happening so i i think that i think there are um people that are misapplying business frameworks to uh you know a sort of a, a context philanthropy that just is not especially helpful all the time. And I want to say it's important to be business-like. I mean, organizations need to be professional and accountable. Um, and as they grow, their sort of governance, sophistication, um, and their management needs to grow along with it. But prioritizing organizational sustainability over morally credible leadership yeah, uh, is, is, is not the way to go about it. You yeah. can have a great looking organization that has all of the right systems and professional right. people in place. Yep. And it's perfectly useless, uh, actually on the ground. Yes. Right. <laughs> or but more, it's really good at raising money. Than somebody else who has, has more credible moral leadership. I like the way you put that. That's actually very well put. And this is something we hear all the time, right? Um, from, from donors, individual donors, from, from, foundations, um, these nonprofits need to learn uh, more how to act like a business. Um, and oftentimes these are, this is said by people who were themselves very successful in the world of business. 
And I think you're right. I mean, there's there are some obvious ways in which that is sometimes true um, or often true. Like you said, governance, like keep good books, you know, get your get your what your data customer database essentially in order. Like that's all true. Um, but there are other ways in which this really isn't like a business. It's not like a nonprofits and the nonprofit world are is in certain ways fundamentally different from for-profit businesses. And and I think you've put your finger on it because they're just not, they don't function at their best when they are transactional, but rather when they aim to be transformational. I think that's right. And I think it, it takes um, a deep well of hope and commitment to continue to work to help people who are imperfect uh, and maybe sort of take themselves out after you've invested a lot of time and energy um, and sort of holding space for people that have gone away and, and may or may not come back into the fold of the community is something on paper that looks totally inefficient. Just doesn't make sense. But, yes. but what you're getting at, I think, is there's a um, there is a, a moral relationship created by by. Um, a philanthropic relationship, I guess, of a funder and fundee. That that's um, that's at the core of how this works. It's not just me. I give you money to go do X. Um, that doesn't work as well. It doesn't work as well, and um, you're sort of wading into another um, area that is particularly problematic. Which wait, is- wait, hold on. Then I that, you just give me the perfect segue. We'll we'll take our break. We're going to come back and hear about Alicia's problematic thing. <laughs> right back. Okay. Uh, time for a practicality. Uh, and Today, uh, we're talking to Chris Kudemeyer. He's a managing director here at American Philanthropic. And um, before he joined us, uh, gosh, about a year ago. Is that right, Chris? That's right. Uh, You were uh, the vice president of annual giving at Focus, the Fellowship of Catholic University Students. Lots and lots of experience in major gifts. uh, And that's what you're going to talk to us about today, right? That's right. So you led a master class we had, uh, of course, just through Zoom, um, gosh, just last week or two weeks ago. Um, there were some takeaways from that. We had like 25 fundraisers on there. It was you and a man named Jeff Trimbath who does uh, some major gifts consulting with us as well. Um, what did you take out of that, Chris? What, what came up in that conversation that people should be aware of right now? No, I think that uh, – Major gifts is a fun part of development. I think when people think of uh, what would be fun to do as far as fundraising, uh, spending time with wealthy people sounds like it would be the most fun thing to do. Uh, And indeed, sometimes it is. Um, You certainly uh, have nicer dinners doing uh, doing that than uh, than working on a on a uh, an online giving page. Right. So it can be a lot of fun and. you know, at the same time, I think one of the things that that uh, that that people get wrong is that they think that they're there to uh, come and pitch their organization. Right. And right. Uh, it's it's a lot more about building relationships that that people give to people, and uh, when people decide to give a large gift, a major gift, it's it's a it is a relationship of trust. So it's less. Is this the best use of my dollars? People do want to pay attention to what's good ROI in terms of their philanthropic dollars, but but before that, they have to trust the people that they're that they're giving to. Um, and for most people, that's the development officer. So you have to be yourself. You have to be authentic with these potential donors. If you think of them as someone you're hoping to get money from. Uh, they will pick up on that and and it won't be a good relationship. They need to know that you're there because you are passionate about the organization you're share, you're sharing with them. Um, yeah, genuine you may it uh, it's hard for people sometimes because to be authentic and genuine and really care about building a relationship, 
is uh, doesn't strike the impatient gift officer as the fastest way from A to B. So it could be hard for people, right? Yeah, one of my uh, one of my favorite uh, colleagues used to say, "I don't have time for fake relationships." So I'm going <laughs> to be real with them right away. Uh, when they asked him why he came to the organization, he talked about uh, the the death of one of his children. And that that made him want to change what he did with his life. And that's why he worked there. Um, and he felt an experience that by him being authentic and transparent right away, uh, it allowed the other person to be the same. Uh, and that that allowed them to go a lot deeper in terms of that relationship. That's really good advice. Um, okay, so that's one. Be authentic. What, what else? I think um, I think we also have to be to be humble. And I, I mean that in the sense of it can be very easy to think of wealthy people as, um, oh, wow, they've got everything and I wish I had what they had. Uh, but to remember that they've got struggles in life as well. And, and sometimes those struggles are amplified because of their wealth. Um, mm-hmm. if, if one of your children suffer, suffers from a, an addiction, um, you, the, the, your pursuit of wealth may have had something to do with that. So you may, I'm not saying that, that it does or that you would, but, but I know some people who feel that, that that had something to do with, with that situation. And, uh, they've got a hard decision to make because if they pass on too much of their wealth to that child, uh, they may end up overdosing. And right. so it's a, you know, they deal with issues and challenges that make them just as real and have just as hard of a life as anyone else. That's good. That's good. And is there, is there a third thing? I think you really want to honor honor them and um, and their philanthropy. When you're when you're asking for a gift, the the way to have a good ask is to have good preparation, mm-hmm. and typically that means good cultivation. So um, you want to know why they support. You want to know how they made their money. You want to find out about their family life and you want to learn about their philanthropy and you can't ask those kind of questions unless you set this, the, the stage honoring them because otherwise you could ask these deep and personal questions and people could say, could feel that whatever they say is judging. Yeah. And, and so by saying you've done so much for the community and I would love to hear how did you make the money that you're able to now give away? And by being honoring, it really changes the way that those questions. It's really encouraging uh, to know that just being a polite and caring and um, honest and virtuous person actually helps raise money. That's kind of nice to know. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Chris, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. We'll see you. Bye. Alicia was just about to tell me what swamp I had waded into, something problematic. What, what you didn't wade into a swamp. <laughs> well, no, but what were you going to say? Well, we were talking about the sort of misapplication of business ideas yeah. to, to the philanthropic yeah. sector. And uh, I think in addition to the sort of um, the short, the, you know, the shortcomings of measurability and quantifiability, there's the entire idea of donor-driven initiatives. If, if we are trying to support things that will endure beyond the tenure of our funding, we really, really need to find people acting on their own private initiative and who know how to solve problems uh, in order to be uh, effective philanthropists. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't pay attention to sort of shifts in, in, in public sentiment and an increased sense in a community that there's a moral imperative to, to solve a problem uh, and sort of the alignment of opportunities to do that. And all of those things can coalesce into something that looks more like an initiative. Um, I guess what I would say is, in the foundation's history, when that's happened, we've cast ourselves more in a role as uh, fomenters of a movement 
rather than directors of an initiative. Um, I would say parental choice and welfare reform are two uh, sort of big, big topics, big ideas that fall into that category. But generally but, but speaking, on the ground, though, they're driving those, right? That's not, it's not, um, I assume those efforts are not top down foundation led or um, the, the momentum isn't just coming from you all. That, that's right. Not only is it not coming from us, it, it doesn't work if we're the initiators of it. And, and that, right. that is model of like lots of foundations, right? I mean, it really, it, I mean, I, I won't name names, but some very, very large foundations, um, they come up with all the initiatives. You know, the idea that a donor led initiative is not um, the, the best way to do it would be to them, not just incomprehensible, but sort of anathema. Yeah. Right. I'm yeah. not saying nothing can ever get done that way. But what I am saying that it is if your priority is to be a steward of the revitalization of civil society, and to me, the ultimate measurement of that is, is this something real that will exist whether we give it money or not? Then you, yeah. then, then you have to take a backseat to the people who are intimately familiar with the problems and solutions. Well, that takes um, – I think that's your, your – um, dropping a lot of wisdom on us today. Uh, th- this is very contrary, as you know, to um, a lot of mainstream thinking about philanthropy now. And, and, and what you just said, it just it requires an exceptional amount of humility uh, to, to, you know, I have the money. I don't get to say what gets done. I'll, I'll, I'll you know, sort of find people to do what I tell them to do is um, more or less the attitude one often encounters uh, now. But so it requires a lot of humility to sort of scan the landscape and, as you have put it previously in the interview, find credible moral leaders who are um, – um, they have the the effort, the initiative, the the energy, the drive, and the vision, and you get behind them. That's a, it's a very different way of thinking about how to spend your money. I think it requires humility. Sure, humility is easy to muster when it's not your money that you're giving away, or it should be easy. Um, I, I, you know, those of us in professional philanthropy. Um, are in a position of um, of great opportunity and blessing to to be involved in giving away money that was um, in in our case earned by thousands of people who worked at you know the Allen Bradley Company in Milwaukee for decades and decades before that company was sold to uh, Rockwell. Um, I think what it requires, in addition to humility, is patience, and I think that's something in short supply. Um, our approach has been characterized as sort of scattershot and, um, you know, and less charitable uh, descriptors, um, <laughs> sort of uh, unstrategic. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say it's a portfolio approach. And someone interested in really getting down into the community at the grassroots level and solving these problems has to have a, a, a lot of patience Perhaps humility, as you say, but a high tolerance for um, dissonance and sort of messiness that's characterized by having a portfolio of organizations where you're the one that can see the big picture and everyone in that portfolio is sort of doing their work as defined by themselves. Right, not as defined by you. Not as defined by us. Now, you can connect those people to each other. And if you support them with enough money at the right times to stay out of crisis management mode and give them an opportunity to pick their heads up and look around, if you're picking the right people, they will always find each other because they know that the problems are too big to do it on their own. So back to the question that you asked about transformative versus transactional. Another hallmark of transactional uh, organizations are sort of people who boast about a one-stop shop sort of approach. Um, People who are doing deep personal work on a human scale with individuals with whom they're in a relationship can't solve all the problems. They have to look to other people to 
come alongside them, as they say, and help. And if you keep organizations from hitting that ceiling uh, and keep them growing at the pace that they can grow the organization, they'll find each other. But that's why the patience is required because we don't control yeah. it. Yeah. And it's in, well, as you say, and we certainly see that in our work, patients, um, um, funders often, often lack um, patience, but it turns out that uh, addressing these complex issues uh, that you all are dealing with, and we haven't really gotten into many details. Maybe you can do that for us here in a second. Um, these things aren't solved overnight <laughs> or in six months or 12 months or 18 months. Um, well, okay. Having said that, let me kind of back up. We'll get into a little bit of maybe a little of the detail or the texture of what you're dealing with on the ground. Tell me um, Milwaukee today, which is where, you, am I right? That's where m- most of your funding in this area goes to the Milwaukee area. Is that correct? Uh, it's true that most of the funding, the, the vast majority of, of funds that we grant to organizations that are practically solving problems along the lines of what we're discussing uh, is in Milwaukee. Um, we do support people who think and talk about this way of, of viewing yeah. the, the community, but um, we don't try to do this everywhere. Um, we're, we're, we're a big foundation, but we're, we have a lot of priorities and we're not big enough to solve this problem in every community. So yes, yes. Milwaukee. You're doing, you're following your own advice in terms of not trying to do, to do everything. Um, where, where is civil society that that's the name of the, the granting area, uh, that you, you work in. And that's the, um, purpose of this, this podcast is to talk about philanthropy and civil society. Where is it failing the most? That's, that's question number one. How do you, where is it breaking down the most? And then, and question number two is where is it surprisingly robust? Sure. Well, I mean, we're all living in a time when there's a glut of information and a shortage of attention, right? So when people respond to that environment by allowing their thinking to be farmed out to others rather than seeking understanding through relationships in which presumably they have a stake and they care about the person, you know, that they're talking to. Um, when we allow that to happen, civil society is failing all of us. Uh, and I would say that's true of folks that live in, um, in the city of Milwaukee, uh, where there are sort of um, statistical and demographic indicators of, of people's um, lives not going the way we would all like them to go. Um, um, but I think the, the, it's, it's sort of a double-sided coin because I think there's so much hope to be found in those communities. Um, uh, people have documented and commented upon the breakdown of civil society and how it's affected the poor, um, in particular the breakdown of the family um, I think there are so many people living in these communities, um, and, and this is what I've learned um, uh, primarily from from Bob Woodson um, of the Woodson Center. Um, there are always people among that um, what looks like chaos to some people on the outside that are just quietly doing things to to help, um, and I think we're all hungry for opportunities to um, understand and get involved in sort of, you know, virtue in action. Um, and these are the places I would look, all of the grassroots organizations. So in our portfolio, for example, we have organizations that work with um, kids trying to keep them out of trouble. We have organizations that work with kids who are already in trouble. We have organizations that work with women who are survivors of human trafficking. Um, we have organizations that work with people who are addicted uh, to drugs and alcohol, and the landscape of, of addiction um, is rapidly changing, so they constantly have to remain abreast of, of what that means. Um, we have people who are, as I mentioned earlier, who are educating um, yeah. People, um, because uh, uh, whatever environment, um, you know, the, the, you know, the families were 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 uh, stuck in previously um, wasn't an effective environment in which to be um, educated to to 
keep moving forward in life. Mm-hmm. Um, these organizations all uh, do this quietly, uh, and they do it heroically, and they do it invisibly. It, it, do foundations other than yours or any even donors, do they find these um, leaders and uh, these people or, um, oh, sure. or vice versa? Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, they they couldn't they couldn't do it without other you know the support of other folks. I don't want to give the impression uh, that that we're no, the founders. We couldn't. I, no, you're not. I, but I don't want to give the impression either that these are all sort of like well funded um, sort of groups and people and activities, right? Yeah, I mean, no, I think that's not. right. Um, some, I, I think, but you know, I described Victor Barnett. I'll go back to using him as an example. Um, Victor and his wife Dawn. Uh, have the moral conviction, they have the clarity of purpose, they have the ability to manage an organization, they're excellent talent scouts, mm-hmm. you know, they, they know how to find other people that think the way they do and that um, can buy into a culture, uh, an organizational culture. Um, they, they don't take their eye off the ball, you know, they haven't been able to be persuaded to do any number of things that other people have asked them to, to do that were sort of off mission for them. Um, uh, they, they're doing many things right and therefore have become robust. And, you know, I would say locally renowned. I don't want to say locally famous, but finally, you know, at, at the 30 year mark, people recognize that they are and should be the authority on how to support, um, you know, youth in the community. Um, they didn't wake up uh, having that stature in the community. It, right. it took years and years and years of toiling and um, trying to get people to pay attention. Um, people that didn't pay attention that were dismissive because they, they weren't, you know, for example, using the, the correct, you know, social entrepreneurship curriculum, right. real example, or, yeah. um, you know, That's just, you know, we only want to work with preventing kids. You know, we want, can you do a reading? Well, you probably did that a lot. You're right. They're just doing band-aids, right? They're not preventing the problem. Right. They need to go uh, upstream farther. You know, why are you dealing with these kids who are already stealing cars? You know, we need to go right. upstream and, and get the three-year-olds and teach them how to read. Well, all of those things are true, but so they, they, they have finally garnered widespread support in the community. Um, but that curve didn't need to be so long and so it steep. It didn't need to be a 30-year curve. It didn't need to be a 30-year curve. But it is precisely because of those sorts of ideas we just talked about, though, right? That philanthropists come in with the idea that maybe the people, maybe a prejudice against the idea that people from the community could never have the right ideas about how to how to deal with the problems in the community. And then also this sort of upstream systems level prejudice, we might call it. Yes. Is that right? You said it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, How do you agree? Because we've talked about this before. But. Well, I do agree, and I think it's this this idea that um, that we need a, a therapeutic approach. We need experts to come in and tell people yeah. what they need and what they should think, and we can't possibly find the solutions in the community. Um, that has just, you know, in, in sort of more than two decades of of doing this work, that has just never been true, in my experience. There are always people who know what to do. Alicia, how important is the faith component to uh, the most effective organizations that you have the opportunity to work with? Well, I think it's incredibly important uh, because it gives a framework for discussing what are ultimately moral and character issues. And I don't say that pejoratively at all. I, I, it's about, it's about formation and it's about, you know, adults who have made mistakes, for example. Um, it, sometimes they didn't have parents. They need, they need to be parented, you know, by, you know, in some ways, a lot of this work is even with adults is, is t- tantamount to surrogate parenting. Um, not because we need to pe- pe- treat people like children, but because we need to heal their their deep wounds uh, and and sort of help them understand the things that they, they didn't understand when their lives became disruptive at whatever point. Um, that's not 
um, that's not something we need to, um, that's going to be accomplished um, by sending in the the trained professionals. Right. Um, that that's the work of people who will answer the phone at three in the morning. Yeah. And so the faith context for that is, is, a, is a, gives everybody sort of a, a framework that everyone can understand um, and gives people hope when they haven't had much reason to be hopeful in their lives. Now, having said that, there are people that running organizations that are on their face, nominally secular, and that sort of don't use that language and that framework for describing their work. But in many cases, they are privately, um, deeply and personally motivated by their own faith commitment to do the work they do. When you see that happen, is it primarily driven by a desire to be as, as broad as possible in their work, or is it driven by a desire to attract um, funders who would not otherwise um, support them if they were uh, explicitly faith-based? You know, I think it's the former. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think sometimes it can, you know, it can be a a useful veneer in raising, you know, raising funds to have a sort of... um, um, not have to have difficult conversations with people who want to go down the, right. the sort of rabbit hole of talking about proselytization. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think usually it's it's the former, and sometimes it's even just a, a personal, uh, you know, personal reservation. Yeah. About wanting to create an environment that's as approachable um, to everybody who might need support and help. Um, it's a good thing there are all kinds of people willing to do this kind of work because there are all kinds of people who need it. And that's a, that's an environment that's, um, for some people, uh, a safer quote unquote, you know, emotionally safer, uh, environment that doesn't immediately repel them when they see a Bible right. verse and, and takes away an obstacle that might otherwise be there. That's right. People. Okay. Alicia, let me ask you, this is my, this may be my last question. I won't make any promises. <laughs> I think this is the last question. Um, I want to uh, let's just say I'm I'm, uh, I'm I met a woman in in uh, uh, Houston. Let's say I met her at a conference, and she's got a lot of money. She's an, an oil executive or something. Um, Twenty million dollars going to go into a new um, foundation. Uh, she wants to make Houston better. Let's say she believes you know in the importance of civil society. Um, she wants to, I'm going to just use words that you've used in the past. She wants to enable all of us to live lives of mutual support and concern, religious expression, and cultural richness. Um, she's just hired you as an advisor. How do I, here's what she wants to know. How do I give this money away well? Who, what are the problems I start with? How do I even go about it? How do I look for the right um, organizations to give it to or leaders to give it to? What, what do you say? Well, this is a really fun question. Yeah. You have Twenty million to play with. It's it's the most fun. Um, so I would say she should start with people and not with a plan. What I would not do is sit down and um, collect a group of people to sit in a in a conference room mm-hmm. and start brainstorming. Hmm. What I would do is commit to quietly observing for about two years. Um, I would ask her to commit to quietly observing the community right. for about two years. And then I would pick up the phone and I would call Bob Woodson and I would yeah. ask him who he knows <laughs> in Houston. Um, and, and then I would call Omar Jawar of Urban Specialists in Dallas. And I would call Jubal Garcia um, of Victory Outreach in San Antonio. And then I would probably call Victor Barnett. And I would call a number of other people in communities all over the yeah. country. You're going to call who you learn to be the best leaders in urban communities across the United States. I have more confidence that yeah. Omar Jawar or even Victor Barnett, a thousand miles away, would have a better idea about the first person to talk to in Houston than I would if I looked up all of the um, sort of philanthropic membership organizations in the community. Um, And I would start there. 
And then when you find the right person, then you ask those people, who do you call when the people you serve need help with a problem? And then you will get three more people that that person trusts enough to hand off their participants to, to address some issue that they don't have a handle on. It is at once a very simple approach, but a very, um, again, you have to, one, you have to be very patient about, um, and would require some more personal involvement than many people might like to have, but it's great. So it's a very committed, um, model, Alicia, uh, that you put forth very leader driven personal person driven, uh, rather than model and plan driven. Um, and I don't think many funders follow that model to be frank with you. I think people have an understanding that they need to have bureaucratic distance or sort of professional distance, um, from the people to whom they give money. Um, and I think they come by that impression, honestly, but I think it's a mistake. And I think if you enter into this work thinking you can prevent your own heart from getting broken um, by yeah. hearing some of the stories that you're going to hear, <clears throat> then you're setting yourself up for remaining on the surface of the community and sort of engaging in what I would call civil society light which are sort of, you know, large organization driven efforts that sort of mimic some of the language and characteristics of this, you know, mm-hmm. grassroots world, mm-hmm. but, but offer a sort of a, an ombudsman or an intermediary step, um, that would, Toward the real stuff. that's right. And give the, it gives the donors comfort that there's someone overseeing things. Um, but it takes them out of, and really removes them from, the joy of um, having an opportunity to be involved in reciprocal relationships with people who aren't like them. It, it's, it's really part of the human condition, isn't it? That we, we get the most satisfaction and sense of richness from those, sort of, from those kinds of reciprocal relationships. And at the same time, we do almost everything in our power to avoid them. Uh, you know, <laughs> it, just seems, it, just, it just seems too dangerous uh, and too entangling. Alicia, thank you very much for being with us. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate it too, Jeremy. I always love talking to you. Good luck with your work. We'll talk to thank you later. You.